0: Well, we know about the fear of God, but you may not know that the fear of God has a name. The fear of God is called zeus Modern psychology identifies this fear as an irrational, intense fear of God. And you can hear it in the word. It's really two words put together. The word phobia, meaning fear, alongside the word Zeus. He would be the false god of Greek mythology. Actually, he's not a bad choice for the label either. Greek mythology makes Zeus the father of all men. He has control over the weather, and as such, he likes to hurl down thunderbolts and lightning as punishment. He was real big on fair treatment and real big on oath keeping, meaning that those who weren't suffer tremendously. And he also has a very bad habit of taking whatever he wants, leaving many lives in ruin. This view of God is real for some people. The response to this type of God is a Zeusophobia. People who claim the label experience chills and nausea and dizziness, headaches, hyperventilation. They tend to sweat profusely when in church. They live with a feeling of dread, and they avoid the topic of God. I think in our hearts we grieve to hear this kind of suffering knowing that there is a one true God who can give peace and who can give comfort, and that there is a love of God that can fill their lives in place of this fear. But we also know, with sober minds, that there is something to it. That there is a God. That this God is to be feared. And I sometimes wonder if those with this zoosophobia don't come closer to the core truth rather than those who don't have it. Because we do, after all, live in an age of flippancy and irreverence and disrespect. We live in an age that does not fear God because it dra- doesn't grasp God because it doesn't know God, and that's a statement about the church. You see, the fear of God is a reverent awe for who He is and for what he does. It's the appropriate posture for every creature before his or her creator. It's the attitude that we seek to reclaim this morning. This morning, we'll review three reasons to fear God, to revere God. It comes to us from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Beginning in verse 17 through verse 21, Peter will give us three motivations to revere our Lord. You may recall that Peter's writing this letter, 1 Peter, to Christians who are experiencing suffering. In those first few verses, he detailed the, the glorious gift of saving faith. He now turns to, to call for a healthy response to that. We saw last week in verse 15, he would say, Be holy this morning in verse 17 he'd say fear god beginning then in 1 peter chapter 1 verse 17 peter writes if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves in fear during the time of stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers But with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 17, our first point this morning, fear God because he will judge you. Fear God because he will judge you. Now, verse 17 begins with what I would call a a certain connection and an uncertain question. Beginning with that first part there, this verse connects directly back to verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, what did Peter tell us? Be holy yourselves in all your behavior... Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, my Bible translation does not have the first word of the sentence. It's actually the word and. And if you address, some of your Bible versions read that way. And that's helpful because what Peter does is he connects this idea of reverence or of fear of God to the holiness of God. This theme, this connectedness, it happens all throughout Scripture, not only in Peter In Exodus chapter 20, God audibly spoke to the Israelites, and it absolutely terrified them. And if the sound and the volume was not enough, there was the smoke and the thunder and the lightning. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. In other words, fear God to remain holy. And in our passage, Peter turns that around. He's going to flip it around. Your, your holy conduct, it's going to display a reverence for God. A certain connection between holiness and, and reverence here in Peter and throughout Scripture. But in verse 17, I mentioned too that there may be this uncertain question about it. What Peter does here is almost asks us if we are Christians, if you address God as Father. If you call upon God, it sounds like there's some question in his mind. Is my audience really believers? Now, in the original language, the construction of the sentence is much more certain than this. When we hear if, we immediately think, condition and and a possibility of there being a yes or a no. On one hand, it's so certain, some of your Bibles read this way, since you have God as Father, or since you call on a Father. But at the same time, this condition, it, it does help us. It causes us to slow down and to consider what he's setting forth. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges... Well, I hear that and I say, yes, Peter, I I do address God as Father. And then that would generate from Peter, okay then, this is good. Look at the conclusion, the second half, conduct yourselves in fear. So it almost prompts us to respond to the if or the the sins. But Peter's going to first spend some time discussing who God is... And what God does before he gets to that command, conduct yourselves in fear. And you see a label, a very popular label, a very important label for God right away, God is our Father. God is our Father. Early in the Gospel of John, we we learn that we receive this privilege of calling God Father. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. Faith in Jesus makes us children. Faith in Jesus makes God our Father. We're adopted. We call God Father. In fact, even when Jesus tells us how to pray and he gives us instruction, what does he say? Pray then in this way, our Father. A very popular way for Jesus to refer to God as Father, we too were called to do likewise. But look what Peter does in this passage as he moves along. He's gonna point to one particular function of your father, and that's your father as a judge. And this is one function of what God does, He, he judges. He is the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Now for the Christian, this is somewhat concerning. But we need to know this is not the judgment of of heaven or hell, not for the Christian. That has been resolved at the cross. And from the moment you believed upon Jesus, heaven is your permanent, eternal destination. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, to say it another way. But it is, however, an evaluation, this judgment. I think Paul summarizes it well. He captures it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So it's what we've done with our spiritual gifts. It's what we've done with our time. How we've stewarded what God's given us. It's an evaluation of our attitudes and our motivations and our thoughts and our speech and our deeds and so on. Each one of us has some volume of work and God will reward according to that. The judgment is impartial. Uh, literally, it's, it's without receiving a face. This is like three Greek words all put together. And you can capture in that idea there that, that God is not looking at appearances without the receiving of face. He's looking at the heart. God knows the heart, and that's how he rewards. He rewards by the heart. And notice here, too, that there's no contradiction with God as Father and, and God as Judge. That God is Father and God is Judge, they work together. It, there's a harmony between the two. It's hard to reconcile this, I believe, for us at times. This idea of God being a father and a judge, doing it perfectly, it's difficult. In some instances, human fathers don't do their fathering particularly well. We look around our society, some are even absent. They harm this God-ordained structure for the family. On top of that, if you're... Watching TV or movies, the entertainment industry paints dads as pretty much incompetent and inept, and then furthermore, the weakening of biblical manhood, well, that just hardly helps their cause either. So in the end, it might become harder and harder to imagine a father that represents who God is, but God is a perfect father. And God is respected as the head. He's a loving and a gracious Father. And this eroding of authority, and as we've looked at it in the world around us, and might even inadvertently apply it to God, it applies to the concept of judge as well. I mean, unjust and imperfect judgments are rendered almost every day. The news loves to, to report on them, and every judge we know even has a, a political bias in, in one way or another. It's impossible not to but not God. Remember what we said about him. He is holy. He is set apart. He's different. Both in who he is and his attributes and how he exercises them. And this God makes impartial and, and righteous judgments and he does it as a loving, gracious father. And that leads Peter to a response. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. If God judges impartially, this all-powerful, ever-present, indiscriminate God, we know that his evaluation is gonna be perfect. If this God judges impartially as a loving and a gracious father, you and I don't wanna hurt the one who cares for us as much as he does. We conduct ourselves in fear. Some things we can observe about this fear. First of all, this fear is going to be unmistakable. One does not simply say, I fear God. No, there's something to show that. There's some kind of deed to back up that claim. There's a lifestyle that confirms it. The word conduct in our passage could be translated as live. Live in the fear of the Lord, Peter says. That same word was used back in verse 15. Again, it's a link between holiness and, and fear. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Secondly, a reverent fear of God is healthy. The fear is going to keep you and I alert. One commentator, Tom Schreiner, compares it to driving. He says, quote, There's a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence. A confident driver also possesses a healthy fear of an accident that prevents him from doing anything foolish. And you can hear there how there's a safety in, in having a, a fear of God. The Bible teaches that a reverent fear is blessed by God. Psalm chapter 147, verse 11, The, the Lord favors those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 13, the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Psalm 103, verse 17, the loving kindness of the Lord is on those who fear Him. Psalm 112, verse 1, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Psalm 145, verse 19, the Lord will fulfill the desires of those who fear Him. And that's just a sampling of the Psalms without going to any of the other 65 books in the Bible. God blesses those who hold a reverent fear of Him. Reverent fear, we should also note, is a process. I'd say that the more we know about God, the more we can fear or revere God. And some pockets of our contemporary Christianity tend to tip their hand on this one. And what I mean by that is you're going to hear people speak about God in very casual terms. God is my co-pilot. God is my best friend. God is the man upstairs. You see what they do is they tip their hand in talking about God in this way. God is not our equal We don't consult with God as an equal in making a decision. No, we we look to what God says and we come in under that. And these ways of describing God, they don't show a a deep, robust relationship with God, but rather it shows someone who needs to develop a deep knowledge of God so they can rightly revere God. Knowledge leads to fear, which leads to a reverence that you're going to hear when people speak of their God. Reverent fear next. It's for the Christian. Remember, Peter writes to believers. And there is a fear that the non-Christian will experience. It's the verdict of hell for those who refuse to come to Christ. It's the fear of what we would call being scared or horrified. As Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Revelation chapter six, the Bible describes the wrath of God being poured out upon this planet. And it's one judgment after another. There's war and then there's famine and there's disease and there's an earthquake. There's wild animals. There are insane changes in the heavens. Clearly the people observe that God is real and his judgments are real. And the believers say to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Splatter our entrails by crushing us, because that's what happens when rocks fall on people. They prefer that than to face God. That's what it is to be scared of God, to be outside of Christ and afraid of God. This is the fear that you will experience if you do not believe upon Jesus Christ and turn from your sin. It is this fear that God will save you from if you turn from your sin and believe upon Jesus. And it is this fear that no Christian in this room will ever, never experience. Because that wrath is for those who love this world. And you, believer, are no longer of this world. You don't belong here. He says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Think of this place more as a hotel than a home. We're just passing through. We're sojourners. We're living in a place without a citizenship. Back in verse one, we're called scattered aliens. We're foreigners dispersed. Reverent fear ought to mark our temporary stay. So then... Live in fear of the Lord, because he will judge you. And use this balance that Peter's given you in verse 17. Look to God as Father so you don't get caught on on, on the wrong definition of judge. God isn't going to torment Christians. He doesn't send believers to hell. When you believed upon Jesus, God became a father to you. And this judgment, we would say, moved away from a condemnation more toward an evaluation. And that thought of God as Father helps to balance out a a wrong view of God as an angry judge, not toward the believer. But at the same time, look to God as judge. And that way we don't presume upon his love as a father. What did John say to those Pharisees who came out to him in the wilderness to be baptized? They thought that they could just appear and jump in the water. John said, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. They presumed upon God. God is your father, yet he is God. Revere God because he will judge you. Secondly, verses 18 and 19, revere God because his son bled for you. Revere God because his son bled for you. And Peter now provides a second reason or a motivation that we ought to fear God. And he's going to use a contrast. We'll do that here in our third point in a moment as well. And what he does is he appeals to our knowledge, what we know of our redemption. Fear God knowing that you were not redeemed with the perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Our redemption was costly. But not in, in terms of, of cost, at least how we normally think about cost. The background to this verse is going to circle around that word redeemed. And there's really two ways to think about this word. There's the Greco-Roman way, and then there's the Old Testament way. And both have to do with a ransom paid. Both help us understand what's happening here. I imagine Peter probably thought more about the Old Testament background than he did the Greco-Roman. But under the Old Testament law, one might redeem an animal or, or a house, or one might redeem a field. Most often in the Old Testament, God is redeeming someone for himself. But in the Roman world, this is the world in which Peter wrote, if a slave were to be freed, a ransom had to be paid. Money would be taken and paid to the god or goddess of the local temple. And that money would then go through the temple and would go to that slave's owner, the temple, of course, taking their commission, And that slave would then be thought of as a slave of the god or goddess of that temple, but for all intents and purposes, he was finally freed. So from person to person, there would have been this exchange of money. And Peter here writes in that way. He writes of silver or gold. He calls them perishable things. Now, if you're a chemistry major, you might take issue with this have grown to understand that gold in particular is imperishable. But again, this isn't a science lesson here and the Bible isn't wrong. When all is said and done, this thing which has ransomed you, it's gonna hold the same value it always has. Not true with gold, not in the end. In particular, money could set a slave free, but no amount of money can redeem a slave to sin. And Peter says, in that former life, before we were redeemed, before we were ransomed, we inherited this emptiness. Inheritors of emptiness. My Bible version calls our inheritance a feudal way of life, a traditions, or a religion, or whatever here. In fact, in Peter's times, this is almost an offensive thing to say to someone because there was a lot of value placed on family tradition. It's like an offensive or vulgar comment to make to someone else. We might say that to break with it might make someone an alien or a foreigner. Now, looking back to verse 4, we discover that that is no longer our lot. We are now in the will. It's written in ink. No lawyer is going to contest this. No accuser can alter it. The creator himself, he's not even going to hear of it. Your inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's reserved in heaven for you. And that, Peter writes, that happened with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And before Jesus, to deal with these things, a mess and a blood was required Just imagine yourself for a moment under the Old Testament law as an Israelite. It all begins with a lamb in Leviticus, chapter 4, verse 32. If you bring a lamb as your offering for a sin offering, you shall bring it a female without defect. Your lamb has to be without blemish. It can't have a damaged eye. It can't have a crooked ear. It can't have an injured hoof. Nothing will be acceptable except an unblemished lamb. You can bring your lamb and you can place your lamb on the altar. This would be something like a, a table with four corners. And off of each of those corners is something that looks like a horn coming off of the edge. And you need to tie your lamb down with each of the ropes coming to the four corners of the table. And you get out your knife. And you shall, slay your, you shall lay your hand on the head of that sin offering and slay it for a sin offering. In the place where they slay the burnt offering. And the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger. He's to put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering. And all the rest of the blood of its blood he shall pour out on the base of the altar. There's a lot of blood that needed to be shed to deal with your sin. And this lamb is now butchered and a fire is kindled. Then you shall remove all of its fat, just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar. On the offerings by fire to the Lord, then the priest shall make atonement for you in regard to your sin, which you have committed, and you will be forgiven. Believer, a greater Lamb has come. And that's the point that Peter's making here. You didn't bring him, you did nothing to bring him, God brought him, you brought your sin. And God has taken this lamb and slain it for you. Jesus offered himself as the unblemished, spotless lamb, Hebrews 10.14. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So to contemplate then, Peter says, knowing what has happened, to contemplate then that God required blood as a sacrifice, To reflect on the thousands of bulls and goats and lambs that have been slain, all of them without blemish. To realize then that precious blood is for you, the blood of the very Son of God was shed for you. To comprehend that God redeemed you from an empty way of life. There are thousands of ways our lives could have gone south to those who get it, to those who see it, they are to possess a holy fear of God. Revere God because his son bled for you. And revere God because he will judge you. And thirdly, revere God because he has prepared for you. Revere God because he has prepared for you. Your salvation didn't happen by chance. It was not a reaction by God. It was a preparation made a long, long time ago. For Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, a contrast here is going to drive the point of our passage. In verse 20, we learn that God has worked in time to redeem us. Since Christ was sent by God, it was also God who ordained the time in which he would come. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That speaks to the eternal existence of Christ. It speaks as well to the foreordination of God, that God foreordained his coming. In fact, God was quite active in laying out the plan for redemption before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now we contrast that era way back then with this present era. Before creation day number one along with these last times. These last times is going to refer more to to this present age in which we live. To say it another way, from the starting line to the finish line, God has Prepared and planned it all. Verse 21 concludes this passage with, with three specifics. What do these plans look like? What does this preparation look like? What would be the catalyst for a fear of God as we contemplate what God has done? Well, we see God's sufficient grace in this passage. Through Christ, you are believers in God. That's a statement about an exclusivity that's in Jesus. There is one God, there are not many gods. There's one way to this God. All roads do not lead to the same place. There is one true believer in God, those who came to him through Jesus Christ. So God's plan has given sufficient grace to be a believer in God. It also underscores his miraculous power, God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. God did not plan a Messiah who would remain dead. He planned a resurrection, which he performed. So God planned to make his power known by resurrecting Jesus, which he did successfully. And then we also notice here this abiding security we have in God or God's abiding security. It's the purpose of these truths. They drive us so that your faith and hope are in God. God prepared you to be at rest in Him. Your faith, your hope, they're in God. They're not in this world. Again, you and I are just passing through. We don't put our hope in the things which we are experiencing as we pass through. We put our hope in the thing that we will see at the end. This one true God who's prepared it all. Revere God because He prepared for you. From a long time ago, a salvation and a a Messiah and a, a rock to trust, In this passage today, Peter's given you and I reasons to revere this God. We revere God because he will judge us, because his son bled for us, and because he planned for us. It could be this morning on a topic like this that there may be some conviction, Holy Spirit-driven, about your fear of God. Maybe you don't live with the fear of God. Maybe the fear of God is, is absent from your life or from certain portions of your life. Maybe it's not what it ought to be and we want to do better. Well, others have been in the same situation. They put their hope in a, in a human king and they gave him the reverential awe that is due to God. These are the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and God sent someone named Samuel to them. And Samuel came to them, and he spoke to Israel, who put their hope in this king. He spoke to them about who God is and what God does, just as Peter did in our passage this morning. But then he did something unusual. As he concluded his remarks to the people, he asked them, is not the wheat harvest today? I will call on the Lord that He may send thunder and rain. And what do you think happened? It thundered and it rained. God sent it. You see, the wheat harvest took place in the dry season. It doesn't rain in May, and it doesn't rain in June, not when we're trying to take off the wheat. And all the people greatly feared the Lord. They were afraid of him. And they said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by taking for ourselves a king. Again, they were terrified of God. They understood that just as freakish, as odd as it is for it to rain in the month of June, so too is it completely weird for God's people to revere anyone other than God. It is just as odd for you and I as Christians to have a reverential awe for something other than God as it is for it to rain during wheat season in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, do not be afraid. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. This is a call to renewal. It is a call to repentance. And if in your life you see some way that you can do more to revere God and you can reverentially awe at God, then this is a time to make that change. He says, only fear the Lord, revere the Lord, for consider what great things He has done for you. Believer, consider what great things God has done for you. Consider your adoption and your redemption. Consider this unblemished and spotless Lamb. Consider all of the wonderful things God has done for you and fear the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you are a God who is a judge and you are a God who is to be feared and in the invitation of the gospel and the closest we now have with you we are tempted to grow too familiar and forget fear I pray for us this morning that there would be a reverential awe which fills our soul as we contemplate who you are and what you've done Help us, Lord. We want to consider many things, but we may forget to consider the great things you've done for us. May they remain in the forefronts of our minds, Lord, and may we fear you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.